You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. As you all know, the entire InfoSec community responded over the 2021 holiday break to the Log4j vulnerability. In this year, 2022, I know all of us will be reviewing how we did during that crisis and how we can improve in the future. Errol Weiss, the health ISAC CSO and regular here at the hash table, reached out to me about his initial thoughts on how his organization did during the crisis. Like you, we were all hoping for a quiet end of the year but it became pretty clear by December 9th that we were going to be dealing with a widespread critical remote exploitable issue. At Health ISAC, we published the first version of our Log4j vulnerability bulletin on Friday, December 10th, including crowdsourced executive level communications. We also sent out a survey to our members to assess the impact of the sector. The response also included hosted member calls or something we call a fireside chat for lots of different reasons. So what did we do well and how can we improve for the next one of these? I thought sharing communications that I saw happening between the ISACs was pretty good during the Log4j incident, but it can be improved. So I challenged my fellow ISAC leaders to work together to improve our intra-ISAC sharing and join in on some of the pilots that we're literally testing today. It's all about helping our respective members and protecting the critical infrastructure. Like Errol said, most of us plan to be off for the holiday break. What's that old Yiddish proverb? We plan, God laughs. Exactly. I love the life of 24 by 7 security operations. But our response to that incident highlights not just the seriousness of this particular vulnerability, but also reminds us all that we should be thinking hard right now about this digital supply chain attack vector. Last week, I covered the history of supply chains from the physical world all the way to the digital world the zero-trust strategy that we should use to reduce the risk, and a potential tactic, SBOMs, or software bill of materials, that's promising, but at least five to ten years away from being useful. But, as you all know, it's not good for me to be by myself in my own thought bubbles. I needed to bounce some of those crazy ideas off of somebody way smarter than me. So, I reserved the CyberWire conference room, where we store the hash table, and invited a brand new guest.
My name is Rick Howard, broadcasting from the CyberWire's Secret Sanctum Sanctorum Studios, located underwater somewhere along the Patapsco River near Baltimore Harbor. One side note, one of our alert CyberWire Pro listeners, Peter Nicolaitis, called me out on mispronouncing Secret Sanctum Sanctorum Studios in the last episode. Apparently, I added the letter I to Sanctorum, saying instead, Sanctorium. Oh, no! Good catch, Peter. The Marvel Cinematic Universe Police has just suspended my nerd card for the next 90 days, preventing me from binge-watching Agent Carter on the Disney Channel. And rightfully so. I'm so ashamed. And just in case you all forgot what you're listening to, this is CSO Perspectives, my podcast about the ideas, strategies, and technologies that senior security executives wrestle with on a daily basis. On this show, I'm joined by Amanda Fennell. Fennell. It's Fennell, yeah. The CIO and CSO for Relativity a company that makes SaaS products to aid their customers in monitoring and managing their legal and compliance obligations. Amanda, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. You sound better at what Relativity does than I do. <laughs> That's I'm, uh, My job is done here then. I've managed to meet my <laughs> expectations. Before we get started, though, I would be remiss if we didn't mention that your podcast called Security Sandbox is officially joining the CyberWire Network this week. That's fantastic news, and welcome to the CyberWire family. Thank you so much. It's been a long journey through season one. Learned a lot, so really excited to join. I'm a relatively new podcast person, too, so I know what you're talking about. Boy, I, I listen to some of my earlier shows and go, oh, okay, <laughs> I totally get it. Yep. So, but tell me about what is Security Sandbox about? Yeah, it's, uh, I think I was listening to... Um, you know, during COVID, took a lot of walks and stuff and running. And, and I just was listening to different podcasts. And when I would listen to a lot of security ones, there's a lot of the same material. Because yep. I think when we've been in the field for 20 years, we kind of all think the same pretty similarly. <laughs> and, I, true. you know, we know that we know what's good. We know what's bad. But it's where diversity can come in and actually be really helpful. So I started thinking, why don't we use all the things that we're oddly passionate about externally and bring it into security? And so season one was about a lot of different curious areas like archaeology, coffee, neurosurgery, whatever. didn't matter. Astrology, didn't matter. But how you could take some of the cool things from those different areas and bring them into security and make us stronger. And we found that while that was super cool and unique, it really was the people side that was the most intriguing. And that really kicks us off into season two and where we're going to focus there. Well, I'm a huge believer in you know getting out of our comfort zones. Most of us uh, read as much as we can, but I find that if you just only read InfoSec stuff, you really are limiting yourself. So you need to get out and read some other things and maybe jumpstart how we might solve some of these harder problems that we're going to talk about today. So yeah. I'm, I'm very excited to have you guys on board. That's fantastic. Thanks. So this week we're talking about strategies and tactics to secure the digital supply chain, both for commercial vendors like companies that got into the spotlight last year with some high-profile breaches, SolarWinds and Acelian, to name two, They've been in the news a lot, right? 
And, you know, from open source libraries like the Log4j vulnerability that we all had to deal with over the holiday break. So let's start there, Amanda. What did you do as the CIO and CSO of Relativity? How did you guys respond to the Log4j crisis last year? Yeah, it's similar process between that as well as uh, what it was for solar winds. It's the same thing that everybody has to always ask first is, does this affect us, number one? Mm-hmm. Right. And so the only way to know that is if you have a good handle on your assets and your data flows and things like that and, and your software. So once you've had the work done ahead of time to make sure you weren't exposed, that's kind of like the choose your own adventure of the best option. We don't have any exposure <laughs> or risk. Then then you have to immediately say, but do anybody that we work with have that like large, you know, perspective situations and customers and peers and things like that. So we're pretty active in the threat intelligence community. And so we got to just make sure we're helping in some way. So we try not to, candidly, it didn't affect us. And so I hate to say we just sat back on our laurels because we didn't. We, We definitely leaned forward and said, okay, well, let me help you with the threat intelligence we have for people who were exposed. So step one, do we have any risk that we have to worry about or exposure or exploitation? Step two, increased monitoring takes place, put in signatures and so on and everything, which you only get because you have access to really good thread intel normally. And then step three is making sure you're doing something to help, even if it's not your your backyard. Well, I've talked to a lot of CISOs about this. It seemed like the first couple of weeks after hearing about it, as everybody was scrambling just to find out if they were exposed, if they were using that software component in anything that they had developed or if any of the vendors that they, you know, purchased stuff from, if they were using any of that. So did you find talking to your peers that people had that information at hand or were we all scrambling trying to figure out if it was uh, applied to us? You know, I'd hate to judge based upon the median time to resolution on that one, like how long it took (laughs) when you made a request versus how long you got the answer back. But I think it's something to be said that, you know, the government, we're, we're fed ramp in our, in our government environment and stuff. And the government sends out these things and says, the FedRAMP ATO, hey, were you exposed with this vulnerability? We require something in writing back in 48 hours or something. I think that's a pretty good SLA to keep in mind that you really should have some expectation of being able to tell people, were you or any of the suppliers you use exposed with this absolutely horrific thing? You should know within 48 hours. There was a lot of scrambling. It is difficult. I don't think a lot of people were prepared for it, even after going through it with solar winds, But those are the best tabletops. Okay, no exposure, no risk. How did we do great this time? And how do we make sure we do better next time when the next one hits? Which it will. Most of us use software from a handful of commercial vendors. Everything from operating systems like Windows and Mac OS to business software like Microsoft Office and Google Workspace to the specialty software like SolarWinds. And they all do software updates over the internet. And it isn't like we've never seen the supply chain attack vector before. You know, bad Tar- guys. Target, 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 right? <laughs> exactly. The target breach of 2014 when the bad guys compromised Target's HVAC contractors network and used legitimate credentials stolen there to get into the Target network proper. And let's not forget not Petya in 2017. Those bad guys installed backdoor into the software produced by a European accounting company called ME Docs. But it isn't until just recently that I would say that most of us have developed a robust strategy to deal with this kind of thing. Like you were talking about, we didn't have this information at hand. We had to kind of scramble for it. After we've gone through all these things, the solar winds and the log4j stuff, how do you frame it now after we've been through it all? Uh, how do you tell your team how to think about it? And what are you telling your boss about this? Well, you know, this is where I think having 
done some education in this area and having gotten a master's in high tech crime rears its ugly head and it is risk equal to probability times impact. And so we constantly are focusing and training, making sure that we understand, is there a probability, how high, how low, and so on versus the impact it might have. And so while we might have like one area that could be exposed, if there's no customer data, there's no personal data, there's no, you know, my own employees data and so on, you know, this impact goes down, 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 down. All of a sudden we find out it's a virtual machine we only use for a test environment. Cool. That is a very low impact, has no potential for lateral movement, yada, yada, yada. So we talk through these things, but it's really on the role of the security people to be the teachers for the rest of the executives as well as the company about how we measure risk. So probability times impact, got to make sure that everyone follows that one. And that you also have buy-in before something bad happens. And that was really the biggest news for a lot of people. You know, that everyone loves to say the never let a good incident go to waste, right? We've got yeah. maybe five <laughs> to 20 days to get budget after something hits to so keep your wish list ready. <laughs> I like to go in ahead of time. You know, my Christmas list is ahead of time for the next three years. Like if something really bad happens, we're going to need this. So I think it's just thinking normally in security, we just think about like a year out because it's such a changing threat landscape. It does help just to push to the three to five years for your strategy and where you're going down the line, because I think that's the way we're going to get ahead of a lot of our adversaries who are becoming so prolific with these attacks in the digital supply chain. So long story, big answer, probability, you know, times impact is risk. It's our job to teach people that. It's also our job to constantly be aware of what that probability is. Well, I totally agree with that. And we've been pursuing that idea here on this show for the last couple of years. The idea that not everything is material to the business. All of us, we don't have unlimited resources to spend on everything. So focus on the things that have high impact and can really affect the business and move on. So I totally agree with that. Um, One of the ideas that have been kicking around the industry, though, for the past decade are these S-bombs, these software bill of materials. They're kind of like you know this, but they're kind of like food labels for commercial software that were running in any of the open source code libraries that we're using in-house. And if we had all had some version of SBOMs in our environments, when the Log4j vulnerability popped up, there wouldn't have been a mad scramble to see if we were affected. The SBOM would tell us if we were running Log4j anywhere. So the U.S. government is pushing for SBOM capability sometime in the spring of 2022, But most of us are nowhere near that capability. And I'm guessing that in the best case, it's at least five to 10 years out for anything being universally useful. Have you seen anybody using S-bombs in any kind of productive way in their environments? Wow. I mean, I feel like that's a setup to say productive. No, not productive. (laughs) Um, And I think it's because, you know, that look, asset management, this is what we already try to do, even in a digital arena. So we need to know where are we supposed to protect for anyone in security. The first thing you do is try to figure out how many egresses, what am I doing? How many doors do I have to, you know, whatever. We, the first thing we try to do is put our hands around it, figure out how big is the bread box. And these SPOMs, the bills of material, the problem with them is just, changes every month. It's just a monthly basis. Your subscriptions to something might go up, might go down, might not be used anymore. Software is being, you know, uh, taken out for whatever reason. It's just, it changes all the time. And I don't know that everyone's, anyone's done a great job of having that planned ahead of time. I know I'm probably setting someone, someone up to be a vendor to do this, by the way. Before we know it, there's going to be our next, our next uh, adventure. We could be an S bomb, you know, vendor. (laughs) I can't wait for that. All of the ways I could, I could use this one, but yeah, it definitely, it seems like it's an empty space. And 
we saw different movements over time, you know, like a GRC, right? Everyone knew they had to have some kind of way to gather evidence to prove they were doing a control. So a lot of different companies came out as a software that got in front of it and said, well, we can catalog all that for you. We can keep you updated and we can automate it. I think we are looking at a space right now that doesn't have a lot of maturity. And so it just, it changes every month and a lot of people aren't ready for something like that. Yeah, I was looking through this. There's a whole space in the, it's kind of a corner that no one talks about. And it's vendors who actually scan open source software to look for vulnerabilities. And and it's been a backwater. No one has really been there that much. But with President Biden mandating that the U.S. government will demand S-bombs for the vendors they're using, it may have a chance to speed this up a little bit. But like I said, it's five to 10 years away. And it has to be automated. It can't be people reading letters and spreadsheets and things. It has to be automatically updated or just is not going to be useful at all. So Yeah, but they don't tend to wait for that. They tend to force the mandate first and make us yeah. do everything <laughs> manually. And then eventually there'll be a tool we can buy for it. But In the end, I feel like the best digital supply chain defense is going to remain that close monitoring of your release channel, ensure that content's not being modified by someone, the scanning that you're referring to and keeping in front of that. I feel like it's about being healthy preventative, but it's going to be a while until we've got this one automated. Well, let's talk about that because I think that's the only viable option here, right? Some sort of zero trust strategy. And I know we were talking about before we started recording that Zero trust has a bad name for some reason. Everybody hates the idea of zero trust. But the idea of zero trust is limiting access to applications and people and devices to only the things that they need and nothing else. So if you can apply that idea to software, I think that's our best strategy here. What do you think? Yeah, it's this is what you and I refer to off offline, but I think we agree <laughs> with this one. It's interesting security that something can seem not interesting for a couple years and everyone shies away from the word, let's just say disruption. That was a thing like 10 years ago, right? Everybody used the word disruption. Nobody in security liked it. Then five years ago, it became a thing. Everybody loved it. And then five years (laughs) after that, everybody hates it because it's overutilized. Okay. Another word that's (laughs) overutilized. Okay. World peace is overutilized. It's lost its value because people use it so much. So my imploration is do not let zero trust lose the value of what it's trying to perpetuate. And let's not get stuck in the semantics of the word choice. Because I saw something on a post today in LinkedIn this morning and it was like, it's not zero trust, it's explicit trust. Like, sure, okay, whatever. I, could, I, privileges. I responded okay. to that one. Yeah, I saw that did same you? post today. I was yeah, like, I okay, sure. And I didn't bother to engage because I was like, sometimes you don't feel like somebody's going to hear what you have to say, so I bother. But I will say, yes, zero trust is a thing. You can call it blank trust, whatever you want to call it. Implicit trust, explicit, I don't really care. But the point is that your org has got to do something to reduce that increased surface, surface risk area that you've created with the hybrid work environment. You have to do something. And in this arena is where you reduce that application or web application risk surface. There's no silver bullet, but this is our way of saying, hey, we know that our our space we have to protect is this big, but we just found a way to limit it. So now it's only this space we have to worry about. And for everyone who can't see, I'm using my hands to make a big circle and a small circle. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but you look at our bag of tricks, you know, how we can reduce risk in our own environments. Nothing else applies here. Pick your list of things you like to do. The only thing that has any hope of having success here is some sort of zero trust strategy, I think. I think there's that, but, you know, not letting go of all of the other parts that we think are helpful. Oh, true. Human beings not being the weakest link, exp- expending that we have constant training, those micro trainings, reminders, testing, and so on, pen testing, 
vulnerability scanning, all those things like are so much part of, you know, just like a human being, we have so many aspects of us holistically to keep us healthy. So does our security program. It's a holistic perspective and it's all of those things moving together that make something really strong and getting caught up on something like the semantics of wording, it will lose its power. It's not about that. It's about the intent of trying to make things more secure. Well, that's all good stuff, Amanda. And unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. So for all of our listeners, that's Amanda Fennell, the CIO and CSO of Relativity. And she's also the newest member of the CyberWire's Hash Table crew. And her podcast, The Security Sandbox, is the latest show to join the CyberWire network. And like I said at the top of the show, Amanda, welcome to the family. Thanks. And that's a wrap. Next week, the CyberWire is celebrating George Washington's birthday here in the States. In other words, we have a three-day holiday, so we won't have a show next week. But the week after, I'm breaking out the cyber sand table again, this time to talk about the Chinese government's compromise of the U.S. Office of Personnel Management, or OPM. You don't want to miss that. And as always, if you agree or disagree with anything I have said or have any suggestions about what you would like us to cover on the show, hit me up on LinkedIn or Twitter and we can continue the conversation there. Or if you prefer email, drop a line to csop at thecyberwire.com. That's C-S-O-P, the at sign, thecyberwire, all one word, dot com. We would love to hear from you. The CyberWire CSO Perspectives is edited by John Petrick and executive produced by Peter Kilpie. Our theme song is by Blue Dot Sessions, remixed by the insanely talented Elliot Peltzman, who also does the show's mixing, sound design, and original score. And I'm Rick Howard, in the penalty box, not binge-watching Agent Carter for the next 90 days. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this preview of CSO Perspectives, be sure to subscribe to CyberWire Pro and get access to the rest of this episode, as well as all past seasons of CSO Perspectives ad-free. And you all know I love getting rid of the ads. Visit thecyberwire.com slash CSO Pro. That's thecyberwire.com slash CSO Pro to explore the many benefits of CyberWire Pro and to subscribe.